are listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. What to do about hiking the hotel room tax? Today, the finance directors of all the counties are meeting to discuss just that. Here's a wrinkle. The attorney general's office says the state tax office does not have the authority to collect the taxes for the counties. That puts the mayors in a fix because they need to collect the tax to keep the lights on. Here's Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami, who we talked with last week about this latest challenge. You talk about government inefficiencies and creating redundancies. It's like the fact that, you know, we're going to be attempting to set up a new tax office certainly doesn't make sense from an efficiency standpoint when we already have a, a process set in place where the state can collect it, charge us for the administrative costs. They disperse the money to the counties and we don't create all these redundancies. So it's sort of like, um, you know, we're scratching our head on why why reinvent the wheel and grow government in a way that there's no really good good reason to. So we're hoping that somewhere or another, we can just stay status quo and have the state dole tax collected. We pay state dole tax for the manpower that's needed and the system that exists and already works. Are they trying um, to work out some kind of memorandum of understanding? Or is there a legal issue with that? We are. I mean, we are. You know, we're working with dole tax. We're working with Director Choi. Our finance director, um, you know, it's going to boil down to, I think, what the interpretation of the bill and what the interpretation of the law says. And then, you know, and that's the complicated part is when the attorneys start looking at it, what may seem pragmatic to you, I, and, and most other people, attorneys have a have a job to interpret the law. And if they think that it's, it's a legal issue, you know, I've seen a lot of good things come to an end. So, and it's nobody's fault, right? It's just that's what was written in the bill. Now's not the time to be playing games with revenue that we need in the middle of a disaster. We also talked with Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth about this predicament. You know, I was very critical about this bill as it was coming through. I asked the governor to veto it. He did. Unfortunately, our legislators overruled his veto, and this, this bill became law. One of the things that we were talking about was there is no mechanism to allow the county at this time to, to collect those funds. And so all four counties are in the same boat as far as collecting the funds. We're all looking for solutions. We do not have the funds to create another tax division. We're hoping to either work together with one of the other counties or the state. Unfortunately, we're told that by state law, the state can't collect the money at this time. So it really puts us in a very bad situation. And, you know, we will figure out a way out of this. But it's really unfortunate that the legislature took these funds, which were really meant to help offset the counties and things like, you know, rubbish and wastewater and police services and fire services, and decided to use them, you know, for the state. And so we went from 96% to what, you know, the, the small percentage that we were getting and now to nothing. And now we have the ability to tax, which we'll probably have to do, but we're going to have to figure out how we collect it. At times like this, it seems like the state is putting on more and more things onto the county. You know, we have to pay for half of our state lifeguard system. There's other things that we're, we're taking the, the bill for that really are state functions. The uh, testing we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, we'll probably have to use some of our, our federal funds that really should be coming out of the state side rather than the county side, because again, the state is responsible for, for health. So this is really straining Yeah, it's county. just another strain on, on the counties at this time. But you know, we're gonna do it because we have to take care of the people that live here, our, our families and our friends, and even the visitors that come they're our livelihood. So we'll do what we have to do. That was Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth. We also spoke with Maui Mayor Mike Victorino, who was eager to raise the tax and to get things rolling. He was hoping September or October. He now says realistically that probably won't happen until later in the year. They won't collect it for us, but we can probably look to utilize that so that we have more consistent and accurate information And we are looking to hire three or four people to do that tax collection to monitor all the taxes that are due to us as a county. And so, yes, it's not easy. Nothing's easy. But 
I think we have the resolve and the capability of making that with the assistance of the budget director and the budget department of the state of Hawaii. So we're trying to collaborate, but I can tell you right now, according to the attorney general, we are not allowed, they are not allowed to collect the money for us. So we have to uh, kind of emulate their system because it's, it's there in place already. They have all the data and use it, utilize it from that point. You know, we did also check with the money chairs of the House and Senate who tell HPR they've been assur- they were assured by the state tax office that it could work out a memorandum of understanding with the counties. But if that is not workable, finance chair Sylvia Luke says uh, if need be, they could maybe fix the law in a special session. She says lawmakers have been weighing going back in session to deal with the pending federal infrastructure bill. As for Honolulu, could the city collect the tax for the other counties? Will any of the tax go to rail? All questions that remain to be seen. Today's meeting is a first step to finding a way forward. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. In Hashtag Howley Boyfriend, five high school besties reunite 15 years later to sing karaoke and wrestle with secrets, September 2nd to the 19th. Virtual tickets at kumukahua.org. Need a break in your day? Whether you're in your car, your kitchen, or still in bed, Manu Minute brings you the rich sounds of Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Learn about the long-legged ayo, the clever alala, and more as we listen to the birds' unique songs and talk to experts about their conservation. Get the Manu Minute delivered to your phone or mobile device. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. One side effect of the pandemic impacting Hawaii students, a shortage of school bus drivers. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat education reporter Sue Von Lee is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, it's only the, what, couple of weeks back in the classroom <laughs> for the students. But, yeah, getting to class, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, it's the first month of the new school year, so we are well into it, yet some families apparently can't get their kids to school because these bus routes have been truncated because there's a statewide bus driver shortage. Um, I mean, Hawaii education officials have told me that this, um, and this indeed has been reported elsewhere across the country, that there are uh, fewer bus drivers these days across school districts because there's a labor shortage and drivers are fearful of COVID-19 or they are in quarantine due to positive cases in their areas. So what we're how we're seeing this play out in Hawaii, unfortunately, is many kids can't get to school. Well, here uh, on Oahu, you know, we do have the bus, but that service isn't available to everybody, uh, you know, on the neighbor islands. Sure. I think you're referring to the bus, which mm-hmm. is the city bus and the, the bus that takes, you know, um, pedestrians and, and other folks around the island. But you're absolutely right. Those routes are not available to many people, especially on those rural um, areas of the state. So even if some families wanted to turn to an alternative like the bus, they can't because it's not near their house. Um, even a mom who I interviewed for this story who can't find a space on the school bus for her daughter at Kapolei High School has the bus route available to her. However, it's uh, it, it's a very long ride for her daughter, and she doesn't want to put her 13-year-old on a bus by herself in an unregulated environment. Um, she was telling me how she's more comfortable with the school bus, taking her daughter to and from school because it's reliable. She's with her peers, others around her age group, but she is unfortunately not able to get a space for her. She's on a wait list. Um, I reached out to Kapolei High School for a comment. The principal declined to comment about the situation and what they're doing about these kids in the situation. Um, and he referred me to the state DOE office. So how many drivers are we short this year? 
So typically, Hawaii needs about 650 bus drivers. Um, the latest figure they said is they are 100 drivers short. Now, they were seeing this shortage issue manifest over the summer, and uh, according to DOE officials, they were trying their best to consolidate routes and address the shortage well ahead of the new school year, which began on August 3rd. But according to one uh, DOE transportation official, even the first two weeks of this new school year, so the first two weeks of August, they saw additional driver resignations. So these companies who the DOE contracts with, they use private providers, right? These drivers are resigning continuously. So um, they're kind of in a bind right now, and um, they're, they're saying that these companies are offering incentives, hiring bonuses, using managers or supervisors to drive some of these routes. But um, sort of the, the, the devil's in the details here because you need a commercial driver's license and at least 21 years of age in order to operate one of these buses. And such licenses are not um, fast to get. So even if they wanted to hire new people immediately, there are some requirements they had to fulfill first. And those uh, providers, those long-term providers, I mean, we've got Roberts Hawaii and uh, Gomes is uh, ground transportation. Transport. That's right. Those are the two largest providers. Uh, the DOE has eight contractors that it uses because there's also those neighbor islands. So they use some of these smaller companies, but Roberts, and ground transport are the two largest. Um, they're on Oahu and I think Maui as well. Um, now, Roberts, Hawaii is saying that, you know, they also operate tour buses. They're trying to incentivize their tour bus drivers to drive school buses and incentivize those employees to um, switch over to the school bus route. So we'll see if that if that actually pans out. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> What's a parent to do, right? I guess you've got to reach out and figure out if you can get into a carpool or or carve out some time uh, to be able to make sure your child uh, gets to the classroom safely. Right. And what struck me, Catherine, was reporting out this story is just the incredible amount of frustration these parents are feeling, not just because they can't get their, their kid on the bus, but because they're not getting any type of communication from either the, either the school or from the DOE. School officials are telling them that it's a bus company's issue. The bus company's telling them that it's the school's issue. So they're just constantly being sort of shuttled around, pardon the pun, in this communication chain as far as what to do about this dilemma. Um, they just want to get a response. They want to get a person on the phone, but they're being given numbers, phone numbers in which no one is responding or not replying to their messages. So you know, I, I, I really feel for some of these parents who, who, who don't know what to do. I mean, some of these are working parents. They have to leave for work, and they rely on the school bus to get their kid to school. It's not like they can just drop them off because it conflicts with their own work schedule. Yeah, it's tough. So it's, it's a tough situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Suvan. Thanks for having me on. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. What do you get when six Hawaiian legends come together to work on a project? A masterpiece. And that's what we're focused on for today's Backyard Quiz. In 1971, the beloved music group, the Sons of Hawaii, released a box set entitled The Folk Music of Hawaii. The five legendary musicians who collaborated on it, Gabby Pops Pahinui on guitar, Eddie Kamai and Mokeale on ukulele, Joe Marshall played bass, and David Feet Rogers manned the steel guitar. The album featured 14 tracks of new and old songs like No Ke Ano Ahe Ahe. No Ke Ano Ahe Ahe Ke Aloha Na Ikahali Ali Ahana 
Now, the cover of the box set is also instantly recognizable. It features the faces and the names of five members of the Sons of Hawaii on an abstract pink, orange, and purple background. And it was designed by a local artist beloved for his paintings depicting Hawaii history. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of the sixth Hawaiian legend that contributed the cover art for this project? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. The Big Island's COVID numbers have been in the triple digits, which prompted Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth to ask the governor to begin shutting down large gatherings at beach parks and events where clusters are emerging. We talked to Jason De La Cruz, District Health Officer for Hawaii Island this morning, about the recent FDA approval of the COVID-19 vaccine. With that full approval, really the benefit to that is that um, you know individual providers may also now be able to request some of that vaccine and, you know, whereas before we as DOH were recruiting providers uh, to become COVID vaccine providers, now there may be even more access points for individual providers, private practices, uh, and incentive for them to sign up as well. So we're hoping that, that you know, that's going to take some time, of course, to, to get into the logistical queue and, and, and have providers kind of sign up. But evidence has shown with previous um, you know, vaccine hesitancy that your personal provider and medical providers in general are a really good point of contact for people to cross over that fence into getting vaccinated. So, ho- so hopefully you'll know what, by the end of the week uh, what kind of uh, uh, well, uptick, well, it, if yeah, any. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll be able to see that. But as more providers now come along and I can offer that to you, hey, you come in for your physical, hey, it's time, it's, it's, it is flu shot season, right? But are you also COVID vaccinated? And maybe you have that discussion with your provider, that one-on-one, because you've been waiting for that moment. And your provider before was saying, still under emergency use, I don't have it in my shop. I would recommend you go get it. But some people are very different and say, we can do that for you right now. And I'm hoping that down the line, we're going to see more of those interactions play and get some of those folks to cross over. We have seen your numbers in the triple digits. You know, what's the snapshot? We have great testing and vaccination providers on island concurrently doing that at the same site. We are constantly trying to push that out into more areas and to offer it with additional frequency. We are hitting kind of that ceiling, though, in terms of just available providers and workforce to do it. We're seeing a lot of long lines at our public testing sites, and that's just one of the ways that you can, of course, get get tested. We want people to know that if they are vaccinated and have been exposed to someone, that they should be that test site three to five days after last known exposure. You know, we don't want someone just saying, oh, well, I was at work with someone that heard they were positive and now I want to go get tested immediately. If you're vaccinated, we're going to assume that that vaccine works because it is working the majority of the time. If you're exhibiting symptoms, absolutely, we want you to go get tested because that's when we're more likely to get a more reliable result. But if you're asymptomatic, we're asking you to wait three to five days after from that last known exposure to go get tested. You know, we need people to continue to be vigilant uh, to reduce community transmission, you know, reduce your activities around others, large social gatherings, you know, go out as you need to. There is policy changes that I know our county, Hawaii County, is looking at, and those are a result of this high community transmission. And so, uh, you know, no one really wants to go back to that, but those things will help to reduce this high level of cases. The community needs to know that, that their efforts can really help to push these down. 
Mayor Roth, you know, has talked about the beach gatherings, you know, that kind of thing and closing those down. What can you tell us about the numbers? We are now at kind of the stage where we're we're hitting this this average, high average number. Usually it's over 100. I think our most recent uh, 14-day average was 128. It doesn't seem to be exceeding that. Sometimes it's larger than 128, maybe 140, 150, maybe it's less you know, bundle 100 or so. So, you know, that's that's why we're looking at that average that tells us just where we've been, not just one day in time, but over the last 14-day period. That number may be increasing, and it has been over the last couple of weeks, but it's not increasing so much that we're going from 100 to 150 to 200 to 300. That doesn't necessarily mean that there may be more cases out there. We may be hitting some critical mass for even our testing in terms of people accessing testing, and even people wanting to get tested. These numbers give us an idea of what's happening locally. It could be the tip of that iceberg. Not everybody that is symptomatic wants to go get tested and will get tested. And so we want to make sure that we're using this information that we're getting. And right now, it is of a high enough volume. We have a high positivity rate. We have this consistent number now of 128 cases over every, every day for the last 14 days. I mean, this is very different from what it was six to seven, eight weeks ago. You know, we were averaging far less. And so we've seen that kind of rise, but it's not a doubling kind of rate at this time. And we know it is putting a strain, you know, on the medical facilities there. And, you know, you've got the flying nurses that came in, the staff to, to help spell our local uh, healthcare workers. Anything more that you're hearing on that end? For anyone that's ever gone to the ER and had to have waited longer than they thought they should have for something, this is kind of the scenario we're, we're dealing with, with any large increase in medical use. If we can't admit someone into the hospital because there's not enough room, then they may stay in the ER much longer, which means you may be seen less and less if, you know, you're not having a, a a great medical emergency that needs prompt, immediate attention in that ER. On top of that, there may be people in the hospital that should be discharged to maybe, say, a long-term care facility, like a, a nursing home. And right now, because of the activity level, the nursing home may not be taking in additional people, too. And so they're held at the hospital. They have nowhere to go because of all this community transmission. So there's all these different ripple effects down the line. Individual actions from people matter. They're going to help to prevent community transmission. A vaccination is a nice passive shield, but you also have your non-pharmaceutical interventions, your masking, your social distancing, your, your hand washing, all of these good things. They're just you know, part of the, something that an individual can do so they don't enter into this hospital. And so if you then have an unfortunate accident, a car accident or something, we want to make sure that there's a prompt access point for you to seek that care. Furthermore, for us on the neighbor islands, our major partner is Oahu, and we have to send people that can't be stabilized on the big island or Maui or any of the other neighbor islands, they get sent to Oahu. If Oahu is seeing high demand and in critical stages, what happens to our patients that we have to get off of our island? Again, this is just a ripple effect that may not be direct COVID diagnosis, but there's going to be all these ripple effects down the line. So this is where public health prevention really matters. What can you say about the positivity rate? You know, there is obviously much higher positivity rate in other counties across the U.S. We are just seeing a continued increase in our positivity rate. Where I think we're at 8% and higher typically right now. That number is uh, recalibrated. It's kind of a moving average as well. I think it's on a seven-day average. That gives us some sense of if X amount of people going to get tested, how many of them are coming back. And it's taking away some of those variables of how many people got tested and for what reasons. Uh, but we are seeing an increase. And the WHO would classify that any positivity rate above it is a major concern, and technically countries should not be opening back up until we've gone below 5% positivity. So it's a reliable measurement of just community transmission, people that are seeking testing, how many of those are coming back. And I think those numbers speak for themselves, too. If 100 people go and get tested, whether they were symptomatic, asymptomatic, or just wondering, that means 8% of those or 8 of those 100 individuals are coming back positive, 92 uh, are not. And, you know, maybe some of those 92 were symptomatic and it wasn't COVID, 
but we're hoping they still stay home because they may have been sick with something. I mean, I was actually in that position over the weekend where I had a very high fever, and I was like, wow, I may have COVID. I'm not sure. I went and got tested, and it was negative, but I was still sick. So I still did that preventive behavior, not COVID, but I still took that right action. We have found some very good partners on island to provide testing. Any community member that is seeking community testing at no cost should visit the county website to see the test calendar. There are at least two sites in two or the three sites in Hilo uh, each week in Kona, I believe. Um, don't quote me on this. I think there there is a um, I think it's on Tuesdays. And then I hear that we may have another partner coming on to expand testing further in West Hawaii. In addition to that, we have rural health hospitals that may be able to also assist in future testing. We may do pop-up testing sites in different parts of the island as well. In addition, you have urgent cares, you have um, HMOs, you have other providers that are willing to do testing, but that may come at the cost of the individual. So there is a mixture of if you need it right now, you want to go get tested, you don't want to wait in line, fine, go to your urgent care. We don't want particular folks who are asymptomatic going to the ER wanting to get tested because they felt that they're exposed and they need to do it. You know, you're not having a medical emergency at that point. There are other places to access COVID diagnostic testing. There's still a lot of work to do, and we still know that on our island, there's three zip codes, I believe, that are under 35%. And so, you know, it's not surprising that these are places that typically would be considered medically underserved. They may not have you know, their primary care provider relationship already. There may be uh, access and transportation issues. Right. What are those areas? I believe it's those three areas were Pahala, Nalehu, and Ocean View. Anything else you want to underscore? Yes. You know, one thing we're noticing a lot is that with the case numbers high, there was always a probability of not being able to get a hold of a case. And this may be due to maybe the number wasn't put wrong at the provider level when it was forwarded over to DOH. Maybe the number was, was put down wrong on, on intake. Maybe folks see a weird number from, from us after a diagnosis and they don't answer it. Maybe they get a message from us and they, they don't want to respond, right? What we'll call this is a loss to follow-up. We're seeing more and more of this loss to follow-up, and that's being experienced on all islands, uh, you know, including ours. And then all of a sudden, 10 days later, someone will emerge. They are calling our offices. They are actually showing up in person and saying, hey, I had COVID. I never got called by DOH, and my employer or my school is now telling me I need X, Y, and Z to get back to school, and I don't have it, and I want it. And we're able to look back into our files and say, like, well, we tried to contact you on this date. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. If you get a COVID-positive diagnosis from a provider, obviously you should be taking corrective action right then and there, self-isolating, notifying your contacts, and have that plan in place to isolate so you don't transmit to other people. The way we've been able to scale up our contact tracing team, we don't have, we didn't have a centralized thing. So we're actually using a lot of cell phone and mobile phones that we um, were able to get. This allows us to also text because some people will not respond to phone calls, but they'll respond to text just to start that conversation. So if you get a positive COVID diagnosis and you get a funny number, text or phone number from a number you don't particularly recognize, take a chance and answer it because it's us trying to reach you. Okay. And in the past, we were trying, you know, on average, I believe our team was, you know, when we had that luxury, we were trying three times a day over three days. We don't have that luxury now with this, with this timeline. And so after X amount of attempts, we're calling it a loss to follow up and moving on because we're going to work with someone that is actually going to answer their phone or that we have the right info. Okay. So if we can't get a hold of you, you're not going to be investigated. We can't issue you that paperwork, and we're, we don't know what you're doing out in the community. It's really important people, you know, upon that diagnosis, that they become our partners as well. That was Jason De La Cruz, Acting Health District Officer for Hawaii County. He was talking about what the approval of the Pfizer vaccine may mean for the Big Island cases.
Big Island hospitals are operating beyond capacity, and they are seeing the highest numbers of COVID cases since the pandemic began. We've been in contact with officials there, and White County is hoping to ease the strain on the island's healthcare system by tightening COVID restrictions on the island. HPR's reporter Kuvehirishi just returned from the Big Island and joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, that's right. COVID-19 hospitalizations at the Hilo Medica Center are at an all-time high. We've got 36 COVID patients right now uh, in the hospital, including six in the ICU and uh, five of whom are on ventilators. Mm. And uh, elective surgeries were canceled earlier this week to free up some space and hospital beds. And also hospital staff were working overtime and taking on extra shifts. Uh, there was some recent, uh, as you mentioned, relief. About 12 uh, healthcare workers came in last week uh, to help relieve some of the staffing there. And uh, they are expecting another 14 over the next two weeks to come in and, and help out. But most of these hospitalizations, from what we hear, are younger, unvaccinated patients between the age of 20 and 50 years old. Um, and vaccinations really make a difference in the strain on the hospital resources because, uh, as we've seen, unvaccinated uh, patients are staying longer in these ho in hospitals. In fact, uh, they've got a couple of long haulers, as they call them, at the Hilo Medical Center, one who's been there for more than 100 days, yeah. and another in the ICU for more than 50. And so you can imagine, you know, the inability to discharge uh, patients is also sort of exacerbating the situation. Um, but this is a big deal, not only for COVID patients, but for anyone, as you've heard from uh, the Hawaii County District Health Office, anyone needing uh, care from the hospital or, you know, you were thinking a heart attack or a car accident, critical care, for example. If COVID uh, hospitalizations continue to climb, uh, this could further impact uh, the medical center's ability to provide that care. Uh, where it's needed. And so uh, we spoke to Elena Kabatsu, public affairs officer for the Hilo Medical Center, and she says on a good day, they've got one or two beds open, but on a really bad day, they've got these holds in the emergency department uh, because they've got nowhere else to put patients. So right now, they've got 13 holds, um, so patients waiting to get a bed, and three of them uh, are, are COVID patients. So un until these COVID-19 restrictions that the Hawaii County has been um, talking about and considering uh, to put in place to curb that spread, Kabatu is, is really urging Big Island residents to get vaccinated because it, it really does make a difference in that, in that strain on the medical center. It's really important to get vaccinated because what we're seeing is vaccinated people who require hospitalization are staying with us between nine, uh, six and nine days. On average, those who are unvaccinated are staying with us for upwards of four weeks. And like I said, we have someone with us who has been here for over a hundred days and another person who's been in our ICU for 50 days. And you can imagine the average length of stay for a non-COVID patient is four days. So how many more people could we have taken care of? Vaccination rates uh, on the Big Island are currently at about 59% with higher rates in, in larger uh, population centers like Hilo, Kona, and Waimea. But uh, as you covered earlier, there are these pockets in more rural areas like Pahala, Ocean View down there in, in south uh, of the Big Island, and also in Puna in areas like Mountain View and Pahua, they're seeing 35 to 40% vaccination rates. And uh, so Hawaii County officials have sent a proposal to Governor Ige to sort of reinstate closures on county parks and beaches to help limit those public gatherings. And they're also uh, hoping to bring back the Safe Travels program, which would allow the county to better track community spread. You know, you're, you're uh, from that uh, side of the island there. What do you think is behind uh, the low vaccination rates in some of these neighborhoods? In these particular neighborhoods, from uh, my understanding, a lot of it is access but also just, you know, the idea that I'm so far away from from city centers, I'm I'm fine. I don't need to, you know, I'm not going to go out into these areas. But for Hilo, for example, they've got a 70 percent uh, vaccination rate. So um, there are 
varieties there. It's interesting to see what the FDA's approval uh, of the Pfizer vaccine will do uh, to convince some folks. But at the hospital, for example, uh, they have implemented just yesterday, implemented the vaccine policy similar to what Governor Ige has done at the state level to mandate vaccines. And if not, you're doing testing every week. That just rolled out um, yesterday. And uh, hopefully, uh, as things sort of progress, uh, we're going to see those vaccination rates rise. Yeah. You know, I guess for the folks listening out there, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, you know, make an appointment, go down to where you can get the shots because you're really not fully protected until after that second Pfizer shot, after the second Moderna shot. Uh, you know, Johnson and Johnson, you just get one, but still it, it takes a while and uh, right. y- you want to you want to get protected. And, and I think in, you know, in lieu of that, Hawaii County officials are really hoping these restrictions will sort of keep people away until those vaccination rates can come right, up. Right, because we don't, we don't like the mandates and the shutdowns. So, so please, Kukua. <laughs> yes. Right. Let's help each other out. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuve. Mahalo. That was HBR's Kuve Hirishi. Just back from the Big Island, you can read her stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. The latest forecast from the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Work Group cautions that the COVID cases in Maui County may be two weeks behind the surge on the Big Island. We talked to Dr. Lauren Pang with the State Health District Office on the Valley Isle this morning, where the community has been battling not just the original virus, but a California and a Brazilian variant. Delta, however, is still the dominant strain. Other countries saw Delta before us, specifically the UK. They are about several weeks ahead of Maui, the introduction and the climb. So they rose from uh, a few percent of the COVID to a Delta to like 99%. The vast majority was Delta over the course of about 10 to 12 weeks. And their numbers from the baseline, when they started, their numbers were about 2,000, their cases. Then their numbers rose about 25 times. It rose to 54,000, like 27 times. So we saw this frightening exponential rise in the cases. That's what we said we might end up in after 10 weeks. And so we also looked at other countries, uh, Thailand and Japan, to see similar kind of exponential rise, but a little bit slower, maybe over 13, 14 weeks. And then we had a lot of questions because that's where I thought we were going. So Maui, when we first kind of saw the variant Delta, introduced. We had about 10 cases. We thought that maybe over 10 or 11 weeks, we might rise 25 times to 250, just Maui. And that's just the confirmed cases. Remember, for every case, when things get out of hand, for every case you see, there might be several out there. That's kind of where we stand. A lot of people ask me, well, what do you think we peak at? You peak by definition when you start coming down or hold stable. I'm not sure we're going to peak. UK peaked and kind of came down. They did some uh, interesting interventions to come down. But other countries, Thailand and Japan, they don't seem to peak yet. They just keep going up. And so um, that's the situation we face, higher numbers. And I think you can see it now. Of course, it grows exponentially. You know, there might be a period where Maui doesn't see a lot of numbers at 80s or 90s or 100s. It just keeps jumping, almost like doubling every X days. So that's kind of the situation. We're not quite there yet. We have a few more weeks to get to where the UK was. So the system we have, initially before the vaccines ever came, we had groups doing testing. These are what we call partners, right? So they can be standard clinics, the, the larger clinics. And then these are, then we have three outreach groups trying to do testing, mobile doctors, right? So there's Minute Medical, there's Doctors on Call, and there's Mobile Doctors. Before vaccine came, they're doing testing pretty well, too. Then vaccine came, and they also, then they kind of switched to vaccinations because there was demand for vaccination and not so much for testing. The numbers were coming down, and people felt a little bit more secure. Or Delta picked up Maui, seems to be Maui alone in the, the counties. 
we had quite a bit of a Brazilian variant, and that caused our numbers to rise quite a bit. But the standard methods, vaccine mitigation, masking, not seems to control. I'm surprised. I thought we were going to be bowled over by the Brazilian variant. But even before we saw the control of the Brazilian variant, the Delta variant came in. We, Can you talk we, about the clusters that you might have there on Maui? Oh, it seems to be like salt and pepper clusters. It's from family gatherings, social events. There's some people related to the travel industry. It's uh, the church, some things. Schools we're looking hard at because, in theory, against normal COVID, children don't give the uh, virus out too much. They seem to get it. But so when we see a bunch of school kids, we don't know quite where they got it from. We assume they're not giving it in the school, but got it from their home or something else. That was normal COVID. Against Delta, which sheds so much more virus, say a thousand times more than normal COVID, all bets are off, and we should watch very carefully. We do. We should do a lot of active testing in the schools. Right now, the kids can get tested at the pharmacies and all, all the partners that test. But beyond that, I think we're trying to set up active testers. That's we go out, sign up kids who want to be tested, and test on a routine basis. We, I think they let the contract to to. statewide for that soon. It's the American Kidney Foundation. You have to watch this because what we learned before was for normal COVID, this thing transmits faster. This thing starts to leak through the vaccines. They're not Delta. This thing is Delta. And then the question is, is it more severe? So the three factors that I usually look for are those three things. This morning in the paper, there was a, an article about a group that you had helped, according to the article, that you had helped to co-found. Yeah. Uh, Pono, the Pono Coalition. Yeah. You know, there's some concern about some of the information that is going out is being disseminated from that group. Can you clarify for us where you sit on some of these issues? Because it may be counter to what uh, the Department of Health is putting out. When I first heard of this group, they came into our vaccine site and were yelling, screaming, making a mess. I wasn't there. So I said I would meet with them quietly afterwards, not at our vaccine site. Then it turns out there were two or three other groups, and I didn't have time to meet all the groups. So I said, you guys form yourselves, and I'm only going to meet once with you guys. I will listen to your comments, and I will give my assessment of them. They thought that was good. At least somebody was listening. So when they called, they kind of reorganized themselves. Certain people were too volatile and inflammatory. So lo and behold, they had other doctors nationally and on Maui who seemed kind of sensible giving arguments. So the basis for the group is to hear everything out. Can we not have a discussion without being inflammatory, accusatory, and by all means, quit censuring people? Okay, so I said I would speak as a private citizen. I would hear them out on what their concerns were. And so we, my area was, and, you know, the the basic premise we talked about for the group was, well, I brought this up, informed consent. Things that are given that are not fully understood, risk or benefit, you must describe that in information given before you give it. The people have to understand what's going on here. Not only is it risk benefit of the thing you're about to give, but the alternatives, okay, that's standard, informed consent. So they took about a week to figure, okay, fine, we will follow that framework, fine. We will have discussions on this, where it's an open platform, everyone discuss. We can agree to disagree, we can, you know, but all the other inflammatory people, they were asked to not be present, take a back seat, fine. Then we started presenting webinars, we started to talk to people on the mainland, other people with different points of view, fine. Um, I think we all agreed, some of them on the mainland were being censured, and removed from Facebook and Twitter in the media. And I thought that was, gee, that was kind of harsh. We should at least listen to what they say and say yes or no. Furthermore, I warned the group that some things I would say, they would disagree with my conclusions, and sometimes they would agree. But anybody who, anybody who sits there with a little tally sheet, oh, he made something that aligns with my agenda. Now he said something against it. Uh, that's kind of foolish. All of the docs on board agree. We will just try to speak the truth here. Sometimes it aligns with what you do, and sometimes it doesn't. It's fine. 
So no. you're, you're, is your position then that uh, you were part of this group just to help the dialogue? I will attend. Yeah, it's an open discussion. I will attend their forums and webinar, and you can see the last one they put out about a week ago. We were there from 7 p.m. to midnight putting out the webinar, Dr. Milhone and I, and I thought that was pretty, you know, well, I mean, we can agree to disagree in the end. Uh, he agrees for certain uh, interventions. I disagree. Fine. We can discuss it, and you should discuss it, because half of what you know today in medicine will be proven wrong in five years, okay? So how can you possibly have total agreement? I, I kind of didn't like the name Pono Coalition. The guy, I didn't choose that name, mm. but the guy who chose the name, he's only been here several years, and I don't think he realized what how, what he was assuming. You know, that's kind of a heavy word. So be it. I'm not here to correct every little thing. If he is willing to open dialogue, fine. I don't care what they call themselves. And then but, just the concern that folks might have about uh, some of the ideas that this group is spreading and then your position with the, the health department? I speak as a private citizen for the group, and I speak as a private citizen of the group. So sometimes my position doesn't align with the group, but I speak as a private citizen. They know that. But their platform is so wide it takes a pretty wide variety of positions. Just remember that. When I speak okay. as a private citizen, it is not of this group, DOH, it's not of anybody. And that was Dr. Lauren Pang, State Health Department District Officer for Maui County. He was detailing the rise of the different variants as well as addressing the story uh, in this Morning Star Advertiser, which questioned his participation in a group called the Pono Coalition for Informed Consent. Uh, the group has shared positions on controversial COVID treatments, which may be contrary to the State Health Department's guidance. Dr. Pang said the State Health Director, Libby Char, was aware of his participation in the group as an individual and not as a DOH employee. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. There's a water shortage on the Colorado River. How did we get here? Historian John Ross points to climate change denial. What's the root of that? Well, it's often self-interest. Nothing should be in my way. Forget the EPA. What does the future hold for water in the West? I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring community-driven pop-up installations across the museum. HonoluluMuseum.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and you're in luck for our Wednesday weekly feature. We've got not one, but two birds for you today. Thanks to the McCulley Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, we can listen to the songs of both the Red-Crested Cardinal and the Yellow-Billed Cardinal. Can you tell the difference? Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Red-crested cardinals and yellow-billed cardinals are closely related birds that aren't even cardinals at all, but a type of tanager. Both are native to South America and were introduced to Hawaii, with the red-crested arriving on Oahu around 1930 and the yellow-billed first arriving in Kona on the Big Island in the early 1970s. Red-crested cardinals, also known as Brazilian cardinals, are common on all the main Hawaiian islands except the Big Island whereas the yellow-billed cardinals are only found on the Big Island. Males and females of both species have beautiful red heads, blackish backs, and bright white breasts. 
where they really differ as described by their common names, the yellow-billed have bright yellow bills, whereas the red-crested cardinal has just that, a red crest. Juveniles of both species have brownish instead of red heads. The songs have been described as similar, but see if you can tell the difference. Here's the red-crested song. And here's the yellow-billed song. Both the red-crested and the yellow-billed prefer lower elevation areas and can be commonly seen in backyards, parks, gardens, and orchards, where they feed on a variety of foods such as seeds, fruits, and insects. Unlike most of our native birds, these birds are able to live in the lowlands of Hawaii because they're resistant to the effects of avian malaria. Neither the red-crested nor the yellow-billed pose much of a current threat to any of our native birds as there isn't much overlap in their diets or habitats. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private, and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com For today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of legendary Hawaiian artists. When the Sons of Hawaii released uh, their 1971 album, The Folk Music of Hawaii, they were composed of five musicians who are regarded, regarded as local industry legends. Gabby Pahinui, Eddie Kamai, Moke Ali, Joe Marshall, and David Feet Rogers. Their names and faces appeared against a bright pink, orange, and purple background on the album cover, art done by a sixth Hawaiian legend. This artist was raised on the Big Island, served in the U.S. Navy, studied art at schools in Chicago, and over his lifetime, his work was used in advertising, architectural design, and on seven postage stamps for the U.S. and a few Pacific Island nations. And his research on Polynesian canoes and voyaging led to his participation as designer and builder of the original Hokulea in 1975. But what he is most beloved uh, for is his uh, photorealistic paintings of moments in Hawaii's history. And of course, we're talking about the late Herb Kane, the answer to today's backyard quiz. But we had no winners today. We stumped you. If you have an idea for a quiz you'd like to share, write to the talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. We have to go now. Up tomorrow, we rebroadcast a show showcasing the sugar plantation history tied to Koloa on Kauai. Share feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>